You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. I'm introducing us, Amy. I'm with Amy Wax, who is the Robert Mundheim Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Glenn Lowry, Professor at Brown University uh, with the Economics Department in the Watson Institute. The Watson Institute for uh, International and Public Affairs sponsors the Glenn Show. So, Amy, how are you in the midst of this uh, national crisis and this crazy time? As I said, I, I, uh, it would be churlish of me to complain. I am, you know, ensconced in a big suburban house. I have a steady job. I have an income. I, you know, I'm not in danger of losing my shirt or losing my job. Um, I am married to a medical person who is a bit in the thick of things, so that's something to worry about. Uh, many people in my family are healthcare providers, and they are on the front lines, so I do worry about that. But um, I otherwise am trying to just, you know, stay optimistic. Everything, my whole life has been upended, of course, but that's no different from any anybody else. All travel. Yeah, we cannot, can we? We cannot complain. I mean, uh, I have to say uh, my situation is similar to yours. We're academics. Uh, we are paid decently. We're in a re- recession-proof industry, although I suppose we're going to have to wait and see whether classes go back to normal in the fall. Um, you know, we're... I don't we're, think we're recession-proof. I, I don't think so at all. I think we're no? in a sector that's pretty recession-proof. We're sort of in the elite realms of academia, and that's a whole other story because I think this is going to show the fault lines of the stratification in academia. Well, I've never heard of, I've not heard about tenure professors getting laid off. Is that happening anywhere? No. Uh, I think some people are taking pay cuts. Rutgers, I have friends at Rutgers, and they've announced pay cuts, but nothing serious the administ- well, this warms my heart, but the administrators, Temple, yeah. is a big pay cut. And boy, I, one ideal outcome from this whole crisis would be a paring down of, you know, the lavish layers of bureaucracy at universities. That would be a wonderful uh, consequence. I don't know if that will happen. Um, I do, what I've been saying to people is, and I, I've mentioned this to you, I think the top of academia is pretty unassailable. It's untouchable because it is this eye of the needle through which people pass to get elite jobs in our society, assuming that our society will continue in something like its present form. That will not stop. And even if they go online for a little while and the uh, experience is, is much reduced. Uh, there's no networking and no mating market and all that. The Harvard degree and the Brown degree will still have cachet. Um, I think that as you go down the pecking order in academia, uh, there is going to be a lot of belt tightening, a lot of rethinking about the value of um, these lavish institutions. Uh, some of them will fail. Uh, I have some friends at small colleges that are fairly reputable and competitive, and they're saying that, you know, uh, there's going to be shakeouts, all kinds of shakeouts. Also, the international student contention is going to dry up, uh, which I think can't happen soon enough, being something of an America firster here. Uh, it's at just outrageous how many places we give, for example, the Chinese students, um, that's going to go away. And of course, that's a cash cow. I mean, the- well, hold, hold on, hold on. I just was going to make that point. These people are paying customers. Why would we be right. so in such a hurry to chase them away when they're helping to cover the cost of your salary and mine? Well, I mean, leaving aside your salary and mine, because that's <laughs> kind of self-interest. I would say it's a good thing that we're going to chase them away for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, I have a starve the beast attitude towards academia now because right. I think that is the only thing that's going to bring about any reform. Um, the, the alumni, the um, the students, the parents—they have no incentive to rein in uh, the massive bureaucracy, the distortion of 
priorities that comes through all this diversity, inclusion, equity, multiculturalism, and identity politics, which is now pervades everything. It is the dominant theme of academia. And I think it's horribly distortionary. So I'd love to see some of that be tempered, whether it will, I don't know. I think too many people go to college. So if a lot of uh, colleges fail or uh, go out of existence or have to reduce their tuition, that might produce some reform in that area. And finally, I think that the universities have battened on the full tuition from students abroad. We have decided that it's our job to educate the world. And that has come at the expense of the middle tier of our American students. There's now data showing that the least represented group in academia is uh, Caucasians from middle America, your sort of uh, middle-class children, mostly males. Um, they, uh, if we had just say, a pure numbers excuse me, excuse me for interrupting. I just want to follow you. When you say least represented, do you mean amongst the faculty, amongst the students? What are you talking about? No, least amongst represented the students. In, they are okay. the underrepresented relative yeah, to actually their credentials. And there are a lot of reasons for that. You may have seen some of these studies. Um, so we are not really getting the full, um, the full cohort of American students in our universities. Instead, we are bringing in all of these foreign students for diversity and inclusion purposes, you know, as a kind Hold of... Hold on, Amy. Come on. The Chinese are not yeah. coming here. The diversity and inclusion uh, goals of the university are not being met by importing Chinese students. They're being met by admitting... Oh, I think you're wrong about that. Oh, really? I don't know how that counts for diversity and inclusion. Chinese students are not counted as minorities in the uh, uh, under so-called underrepresented minorities in the university's calculus, are they? But foreign students are, uh, you know, touted as part of the mosaic that makes these schools international, global, uh, you know, diverse, multicultural. You're right. They don't count for the sort of minority contingent of or that. Effect. But they do count. And it's a nice coincidence that they also are a huge source of revenue. Now, you know, what's my problem with it? Well, it's sort of twofold. The first is, I really think American institutions should prioritize American students. I, I think that, you know, I think there is a neat and appropriate element of national priority that the university should show. Secondly, uh, it's a form of leverage that we could exercise internationally. I mean, suppose we said to China, uh, no, no more, no more Chinese students at Harvard and Yale until China behaves better. Uh, you know, this is a valuable, precious privilege to come to these universities. You're a rich country. You're a vast country. You can educate your own people. Why are you coming and taking advantage of our institutions, which are funded by taxpayer dollars? Nurses and truck drivers are paying taxes to support these institutions, which are, of course, lavishly funded and rich. Uh, that just screwed up. That's that's that kind okay, of priority. Well, you and I are both at private institutions that are are on the whole not supported by tax dollars. Oh, but, oh, you know how much money they get from the government, and do you know where that money goes? I've looked okay. into this. Okay? okay, have you ever heard of heard of what? Do you know what percentage of of government grants go to a general oh, yeah, of slush? Of government grants. Uh, I'm, I am not There's saying that the millions. private universities are not benefiting from public dollars. What I'm saying is I think, you know. Thank you. Uh, yeah, here, let me give you the example of my department here at Brown. Uh, we have a Ph.D. program, and most of our students are foreign nationals, not only from Asia, but also from Latin America and from Europe. And um, we're we're a top 15 department, maybe aspiring to be a top 10 department. We're a very good department, but we're not the best department in the country. Uh, but we're a strong department. 
And, um, you, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, the best uh, applicants in the, uh, in the world uh, when we decide who to admit. Why would we want to give preference to American nationals uh, in a Ph.D. program? I mean, that seems to run contrary to your otherwise uh, strongly held views about merit, meritocratic admission. Um, I don't think in talking now about Ph.D. programs that the young scientists and social scientists that are uh, being trained who come from other countries are um, are are being uh, you know favored because they can pay. I think they're being favored because they are on uh, the merits uh, the strongest applicants for uh, these programs of study. Well, I would distinguish between undergraduate foreign nationals and graduate students, although I'm not sure they should be treated all that differently in terms of revenue. Okay, you're right. Um, undergraduates really do pay full freight and some graduate students do not all but I guess here I say I'm all for the meritocracy because I believe in competence I believe talent is scarce I I don't think all people are equal in their capacity to do just this job or that so let's just put that on the table yeah but I have really come to think that uh that to to secure the future of our country, which is in trouble in so many ways and is so hard on young people today for them getting jobs, starting families, making their way through society, that there it is appropriate to have something like a prioritization of Americans for training, for jobs, for slots, even in the elite professions. So you told me a while back, um, well, in, in economics, the, the foreign students, PhD candidates leave Americans in the dust. But, you know, that, that's sort of a, a, um, endogenous phenomenon to some extent in that when Americans know that they have to compete with foreigners for scarce positions, and they do to some extent, Glenn, whether you like it or not, I mean, the competition in science and economics in the quantitative fields has become more international. Uh, that deters them from studying those subjects and maybe pursuing them. Now, I'm the first one to say Americans have gotten soft. Americans have gotten lazy. You know, Americans maybe aren't as rigorously hardworking as they should be. But in order to encourage that and say, look, you know, there will be positions in labs for you. There will be economics professorships for you. Uh, We are going to prioritize you. We're going to put you first. And maybe with a little bit of sacrifice to the meritocracy, if you're talking about the global meritocracy, I think that might well be worth it. I mean, I have a child in graduate school and um, he's doing fine, but I do see the effects of globalizing graduate education and globalizing competition. Now, I'm not saying we should never have professors from other countries. Yeah, I'm but saying. Let, let, we- let me stop you for a minute, Amy. The reason I'm smiling is because there seems to be an obvious point that a critic would make here, which is, I thought affirmative action was a bad idea. It was a bad idea when you applied it to blacks and Hispanics getting into American universities or into graduate programs, but it's not a bad idea when you apply it to Americans. The same argument that says American students might be, I'm being intentionally provided the same argument that would argue that American students might be motivated to uh, acquire stronger math skills if they thought they could uh, succeed in getting admitted to a graduate program of study in the STEM fields or in economics or something could be applied, could it not, to uh, minority students within the United States who, if they were favored for admission to these programs, would have a greater incentive to acquire the skills? Well, First of all, I, I don't know that the incentive works for affirmative action, so let's let's leave that aside. I think what's going on with affirmative action is something else. But look, you know, there you could you could view this as some kind of affirmative action, but that kind of assumes that the relevant pool is the global pool, that national identity and national interests and citizenship and um, securing 
the well-being of your country as a group of people who uh, have to live together and support, you know, uh, the their their setting, their government uh, through mutual shared interests and sacrifices. That all of that uh, doesn't count for anything. It's kind of to assume this globalist, borderless perspective ab initio. And that is precisely what I'm questioning. I'm saying, of course, merit is really important, right? But there are other geopolitical um, and democratic priorities that without which we are facing a very grim future uh, as a nation, as a country, and as a society. I mean, we we are seeing uh, the effects of the globalist perspective that denigrates citizenship, that denigrates mutual solidarity. You know, I don't know if you've read Ross Dowdett's book about decadence. I have not. Yeah, one of the sub-themes there is that uh, we have lost, he doesn't emphasize this maybe as much as some of the other authors do, but I think he should emphasize it more, um, we have lost this sense of, you know, mutual interest, mutual destiny uh, that comes from identifying as Americans. I'm going to say it, American first, Americans first, the, uh, the value of the privilege of the importance of citizenship and the shared sacrifice. I think the COVID-19 crisis has kind of brought this to the fore. In yeah, a let me, let me, let me stop you because I want to deal with this, uh, with this nationalism, uh, question first. And I do want to talk about COVID-19 with you. But, uh, so I'm, th- I'm thinking a couple of things. Uh, one thing I'm thinking, I've often asked myself this as a, uh, uh, person who teaches graduate students in economics and I look out at my classes and I see very few Americans. Where are the Americans? And I'm worried, you know, this is a very specialized kind of intellectual activity that we're dealing with here. It has large scale implications, you know, for the productivity of society. Um, and, you know, we perhaps ought to be more interested in ensuring that at least some minimal part of our program is directed toward training American students. So I have thought that and I, and I do, I respect that view. And I also, have thought this is apart from higher education, but, you know, as a person who writes and talks a lot about African-American affairs, that the nationalism question, I'm talking about American nationalism for black people is a really fundamental uh, question uh, of our oh. time. So I, so I respect this, this concern about American nationalism. On the other hand, when I pick up a journal, Econometrica, American Economic Review, Journal of Political Economy, and I look at the research, okay, I'm talking about path-breaking, intellectually provocative, uh, profound insights of technical virtuosity. Man, these are beautiful papers, and they're written by somebody sitting in Argentina or somebody sitting in Germany or somebody who's sitting in, yes, in China. And I think, wouldn't I be impoverishing myself as a scientist, a social scientist, if I did not avail myself of the intellectual resources that are um, a part of a global community. Economics is now, I speak for my field, but I'm sure this is true in many other fields, a global community of investigators who talk to each other. So there's there's a, a, a cost as well as a benefit from an Americocentric approach to uh, technical education. And um, I'd like to get you to respond to that. Okay, yeah. So let me, let me, uh, I think everything you're saying is, is very interesting. First of all, starting at the end, I mean, I am not saying that, you know, uh, people other than Americans shouldn't be doing economics. I mean, they're, you know, they, they obviously, there's a lot of talent worldwide. Um, there are a lot of people who are interested in doing this. They should be doing it. But here's my question. All right. And I have a bunch of questions. Right. Why? If Argentinians are capable of doing such great economics, why are their universities so bad? Why aren't they producing their own homegrown scholars? Okay, so that's a really important question that I think we just we can't just elide. Uh, and there's a kind of parasitic element here. Like America has invested, we have for whatever reasons built up this wonderful 
university sector. Uh, we have in, we have invested both public and private funds uh, to to do it, and other people are quote unquote taking advantage of it. I'm not saying that this is downright exploitation, but it is a privilege. It is a it is taking advantage of, of other people's resources. I mean, let's, let's face that, right? Then the second related question is, why are there so few Americans, relatively speaking, who are going into these fields? I mean, we have more people going to college than ever before. Supposedly, it's better than ever. I don't believe that. I think it's worse than ever. Okay, I think the education that we're giving undergraduates sucks. So I'm kind of partly answering my own question. It's full of propaganda, anti-capitalist, anti-Western, you know, agitprop. I think that's part of it. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, how can we get more Americans to be interested in this very vital field to devote themselves? And it's hard, right? Economics is hard. It requires sophistication. It requires quantitative uh, study. Um, You know, why, why this imbalance um, so I would I would pose those questions to you, uh, starting with the first one. You know, Argentina needs to think about. Well, this is part of a broader conversation that we have had before, which is, you know, why is the rest of the world such a mess? Uh, why can't they get their act together? Given that there are talented people in places like Argentina and South America and all parts of the world, why can't they get their act together and have a better, more well-functioning society? Why are they always looking to the Anglosphere and to the West? To, uh, yeah, I hear you, Amy. And, and <laughs> I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, but I, I actually agree with you on the culture argument in terms of some of the exceptional achievements of American society in the 20th century. We're an open society. Uh, these uh, universities that uh, people uh, are willing to uh, pay a fortune to attend if they are Chinese or that attract the most talented uh, people from around the world to our faculty and our graduate programs and whatnot, they, they are the fruit of an open society. They're, they're fruit of the liberal uh, foundations of, uh, of American uh, political culture. Um, I, you know, I know in my own field, and I'm sure it's true in many fields, that uh, when Europe fell into chaos in the 1930s and 1940s and people fled, fled for their lives, many of them were Jews, not all of them to be sure, we were one of the places that they came to and the infusion of, uh, you know, creativity and and, uh, profound insight into the disciplines, uh, the ones that I'm familiar with anyway in mathematics and philosophy and economics, um, uh, the the beneficial effects of this infusion were, uh, were profound. Uh, so uh, we there a credit to the power of uh, a liberal and open democratic order to promote human flourishing, it seems to me. I don't know very much about Argentina. I have a colleague who's Argentinian. He tells me that the university system there is a mess. It's a mess because of cronyism and the political influence on appointments and whatnot that'll, that keep the most meritocratic applicants out of jobs unless they... Uh, toe a party line and so on. Uh, forgive me if this is to some people an offensive characterization of Argentinian university life because I know very little about it. But I, you know, having traveled around the world and met with academics in other countries, I've often been informed of the fact that, you know, being smart is not good enough to get you to the top of the heap in my country. You have to be a member of the party or a member of the clique or you have to kowtow to the line or whatever in order to get ahead. And the, the bureaucracies become encrusted and then, and, you know, close to um, to uh, outside intervention. So I think that has something to do with, you know, with you say Anglo-American. Okay, I'll go with that because I think the evidence actually supports that. The, yeah, you know. or Europe more broadly. I mean, until the uh, the nastiness in mid-century, last century, Europe was doing pretty well in terms of science and its university system. I mean, you know, the, obviously Hitler and the Second World War messed that up uh, very, very badly. But I think what you're really talking about here, Glenn, is, is more than just an open society. It's the absence or the, of the lower levels of corruption. Corruption, I think, is underestimated as a destructive yeah. force worldwide. And 
you know, if you look at uh, books like Larry Mead's book on the burdens of freedom, I mean, it's so much more than openness. It's a sense of individualism expressed as individual responsibility uh, for the moral tenor of society, uh, which is really kind of Anglo-Protestant in many ways, or maybe more broadly Northern European, uh, to, and, and that has resulted in very low corruption, relatively speaking, in the Anglosphere and in Northern Europe. And if I were to point to one factor that I think is responsible for making those societies, you know, the city on the hill, the beacon to the world, the places that everybody wants to emulate and wants to go to, I would say it is the low corruption that comes from a sense of um, moral civic responsibility towards others. And that, that is lacking. So you're saying, well, now what should we do about that? Right. I mean, does that mean now have to take in all of the people worldwide and, and educate them in our system? We have some kind of responsibility. Well, I don't think so. I think we have the responsibility to, to be an example to the rest of the world to not say the sorts of things that you are saying, Glenn, which is, oh, forgive me if I'm offending someone. I can't really say anything mean about anybody else's culture. That's verboten. I mean, you'll never get anywhere with that attitude. Okay, let me let me say a couple things. One is we do benefit from these very smart people coming in here, uh, studying at our universities and staying on and contributing to the society. Uh, that shouldn't go that shouldn't go unmentioned. But I want to just say a word about your second question, which was why do Americans not fare better in the open competition in the in the technical fields? And I think it's because, <laughs> at least in my area, uh, kids are not trained well enough in mathematics. Uh, they simply don't have the sophistication and the depth of mastery over mathematical analysis necessary to be able to comfortably engage with the frontier of uh, the production of knowledge in a, in a, a technical field. There are, of course, some who do, but many who do not. And I can remember, and this is going to sound like an old folky, which may be what I am in some people's eyes, but I can remember 50 years ago when I was an undergraduate student being trained at Northwestern University that they're just the, the um, uh, status of study in the technical fields was higher and that was like the 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 and, and the the level of sophistication of the training that I got as an undergraduate, and this not only in explicitly in mathematics, also in economic theory, but also in analytical philosophy. I took some courses as an undergraduate. Was very very serious. Yeah. And now I look around, and there are still some kids because you can find it. You can find it in the university if you're looking for it. But it's very easy to get by to get a good degree from a very good place and go on to get a pretty good job somewhere without ever really scratching the surface of what's going on in these technical fields if you're an American. And the status that's placed on kind of postmodern, you know, kind of uh, 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 trendy uh, studies right. in the humanities and whatnot, and I'm not only talking about ethnic and gender studies, although I am talking about that. Right. Uh, you go to a sociology department and you look at what's actually being taught with respect to my colleagues in sociology, because there are some serious ideas in sociology to be taught um, and in political theory and, and so forth. Um, and in literature and much has been written about this. I just read a book by this uh, historian, David Kaiser. He's a memoir about his yes. life history. I know him. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, so. Uh, and yeah. he laments, he laments the loss of the rigor and the sense of, uh, you know, seriousness about historiography and the, the trendy kind of identity, identitarian influences in, uh, these areas. So I think we're not training our under, if, if I had had to, uh, decide whether I was going to be a woke, uh, undergrad going along with whatever the enthusiasm of the day is, or I was going to study some of this really arcane dead white male stuff that is what I actually did study in 1970 at Northwestern University. I've never gotten the training that I needed in yeah. order to be able to prosper in my, in my field. Well, Glenn, I mean, this is such a profoundly important discussion. And part of the problem is, of course, that it is extremely difficult to get a handle on what has really changed because it needs to kind of be studied systematically. 
right? So I graduated from college in 75. I went to Yale. Um, I was a science major. And whenever people ask me, well, what needs to change in academia? I said, here's what you should do. Go back to Yale in the early 70s. And of course, that was when women first attended. So Korea was a hideously patriarchal and sexist place, you know, all that stuff. I say, go back to Yale in 1971 and do it just that way. Get rid of all the administrators. Get rid of all the bells and whistles, the wellness, the diversity and inclusion, this club, that club. Go back and look at the courses. I mean, I took maybe eight, ten philosophy courses, even though I was a a biochemistry major. Uh, This was serious stuff. Now, you know, there's a lot going on here. The content of the courses are changing. What are people studying? Uh, What kind of courses do they choose? Um, When you're a psychology major, what are you learning? When you're a sociology major, if you're a philosophy major, what are you learning? I mean, you look at the course selection. Um, My son was very interested in philosophy at Yale. This was three, four years ago. I look at the catalog with him. I said, look at these bullshit courses. I mean, there's nothing here I would want to take. Yeah. There was one course about propaganda. The students called it propaganda about propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you an an anecdote of a student I talked to from Princeton at a conference. This was a couple of years ago. And she said, well, I'm a woman studies and psychology major. And it was a conference about gender differences. I said, well, have you ever heard of or, you know, we were talking about the greater variance on multiple parameters for men than women, you know, how the bell curve sort of spreads out at the uh, the tails for men and what the implications of that are, which is something that Murray discusses in his book, Human Diversity, which we wanted to talk about and says has very profound implications. And I said, uh, what do you think of that? And you know what she said to me? I never heard about that. I never heard that, you know, that there's yeah. variance. And I, I thought, Jesus, what what is this woman learning? as a gender studies and psych major that she's never heard about one of the fundamental findings in the psychometry of gender differences. I I really wanted to look at some of her courses. These courses are politically influenced. They are structured with multiple sins of omission. Certain topics are never broached, let alone discussed. Certain authors, certain uh, investigators are ignored as if they don't exist. I mean, I know this because I teach law. Uh, I teach a course in conservative political and legal thought. And some of the authors that I read, I'll just give an example, Michael Oakeshott, Edmund Burke, Frederick Hayek. These, my students have never even heard of let alone red, and they have gone to the finest colleges and universities in the country. You know, this puts me in mind of, um, I did an independent study with a very fine undergraduate student here at Brown, um, who happens to be a um, a classics uh, major. I mean, he's uh, reading Greek and Latin and all that, but he's very interested in social issues. Um, And, uh, we decided to do a a, a review of uh, of the what the best that we could find written about the question of freedom of conscience and of open expression, and that would include John Milton's uh, Areopagitica. That would include uh, Plato's uh, you know Symposium and whatnot, and uh, the Apology of Socrates. That would include John Stuart Mill. That would include George Orwell, and it also included Alan Bloom's book. Uh, the closing of the American mind. Right. And we, we read half of that book and it blew me away. Amy, this is a mid late 1980s. Bloom's book is published. Um, and it's a critical look at the status of American higher education at that time. And it's devastatingly prophetic. In my opinion, I invite anybody to go back and to take a look at. Um, touching on many of the things that we're talking about now, about the kind of progressive uh, eating away of uh, postmodernist relativist uh, and identitarian thinking at the foundations of, of the American Academy. 
And you just read, I mean, he's got a chapter on, uh, on sex and gender and, uh, you know, he's got a chapter on popular culture and music. He's got a chapter on race and affirmative action, or at least he talks about it uh, to a great extent. And I think he, I think he nails it. I mean, I'm just going to say that this is Alan Bloom. Yes. Alan Bloom, the closing on the American mind. I think, uh, you know, you can see there, uh, uh from his perspective, a, a warning. And unfortunately, much of what he warned about, uh, has come to pass. Yeah, and I mean, it's only gotten worse. I mean, there is so much orthodoxy. There are so many forbidden topics. There are so many taboos. There are so many things that you do not say. The Heterodox Academy just did a survey of yeah. students, and uh, which was online, uh, that, you know, 58% of students or, or more say that they trim what they say and they they trim uh, their pronouncements in class, what they write, what they submit uh, according to, you know, what is acceptable. So I think that that as an influence cannot be underestimated. And, you know, I've said this before, and this is going to make me very unpopular, but there's a certain degree of feminization that is going on as well, right, which is, uh, you know, a higher education as a site of solidarity, you know, mutual support, uh, um, psychological cosseting, um, certainly not psychological uh, distress, right? Discord and and disturbance. Uh, everybody has to feel good and safe and wonderful, and you know that's just completely antithetical to what's known as education. But and the- everybody is above average. Everybody has got to get an A. Great. You talk about corruption. Yeah. So not not being able to give a C, not being able to give a C is a profound corruption. Okay. And I'm, I'm basically unable to give a student a C. I mean, I, I do if forced to. Right. But, but but the sense of entitlement, the sense the students have that I I want to go to law school. I want to go to medical school. I've got to get the internship. I've got to get whatever. You're killing me. You're destroying my life. I'm going to go home and kill myself. If I, if you don't, you know, uh, relent, if you don't relent and it just eats away at the capacity to make discriminating judgments about performance. And it, it's a kind of, and the entitlement that these kids, I don't know what it's like at the university of Pennsylvania, but I can tell you about it Brown and I teach undergraduates uh, the sense of entitlement that these kids have to uh, expectation. They, they will write me letters like, um, I know my performance has been not so good in the course so far, but I really think it does not reflect my true abilities. And is there anything that I can do in order to whatever, whatever. And I, I you know, and it makes me want to throw my hands up. And I wish we had a system where I could just teach and then somebody else could do the evaluation. And I would want them to do it as rigorously as possible, but it wouldn't be on me to have to manage my relationship with these people as a pedagogue on the one hand with my responsibility to evaluate them on the other, because it's at that point that they come to me and they throw their whole lives in front of me and they say, please don't kill me. Please don't destroy me. Um, and I'm, I'm unfortunately not tough enough to say to hell with it. You're getting a C. Okay. Because that's what you earned in this course. Um, I, I, I just find that very, very difficult to, to maintain. Well, at Penn Law, if you give a C, you're immediately visited by some, you know, ombudsman contingent and asked to justify yourself. But it's very interesting, Glenn, what has happened as a result of this COVID crisis. Never let a crisis go to waste. One result has been a wholesale assault on the meritocracy. You know, let's get rid of grades. Let's get yeah. rid of uh, the SAT. I mean, that movement has been humming along forever. I just reviewed uh, Dan Markovitz's book, um, uh, The Meritocracy Trap. And, and one of the things I said in the review is, oh, come on, you have all these allies who would love to get rid of any sort of distinction, discrimination, any sort of ranking or rating. You hardly mention them. You know, the whole contingent of goodbye grades, goodbye tests is is getting ever more powerful. And it has gotten results with COVID. All of the top law schools abandoned grades this semester. They are pass-fail. And I'm not teaching this semester, but speaking to my colleagues, uh, their view is we're going to throw the exams down the stairs. I mean, would you dare give a student an F 
And of course, you know, there's the danger that we'll give the F to the wrong students. And I don't need to say more. The whole system is now driven by the lowest common denominator because we have this virtue signaling fantasy that we have all of these disadvantaged students at Penn law, which of course is a joke. We don't, uh, they're, you know, they're holed up in some tiny apartment with 12 screaming kids. So they can't study. They can't read. They can't do their work. So we really have to just get rid of grades because it's unfair to the poorest among us. We're driven by the least among us rather than the need to distinguish people at the top. And of course, it's the students at the top who will be harmed by this. Yeah, let me let me just observe. Uh, we, yeah, we they had will not this be at, able to distinguish themselves. We've had this at Brown. Um, there was a movement for universal uh, pass no credit. That is, all the courses would automatically, in virtue of the COVID-19 crisis, revert to a grading regime of pass no credit. Right. Uh, that's an option. That's an option that students can take. They can declare themselves pass no credit at the beginning of the semester and then their performance is evaluated on that uh, dichotomous uh, basis, you know, and they typically will pass. On the other hand, if they do so, they will be seen in their transcripts to have elected pass no credit. And hence, uh, an employer uh, will not perhaps give them the same degree of, you know, positive weight for passing a course when they realize that the student elected not to be graded in the course. So a pass doesn't have to add up to an A. A pass might be discounted by an employer if the student elected pass no credit. So the point of this movement in virtue of COVID-19 was to have universal pass no credit. So it was taken out of the student's hands. So the employer could not impute any motive to the student if the student presented a pass and the uh, burden of having to perform for a letter grade would be taken off of the student's shoulders. And the justification for it, Amy, (coughs) excuse me, was that it was unfair to so-called marginalized students. Right. Okay, now these were low-income students, first-generation students, racial minority students. And here's what I thought. I thought the ability to get A's is precisely how a so-called marginalized student stops being marginalized as an individual. As an individual. Not as a member of some race or ethnicity, but as an individual, the ability to get the A is the exact antidote to marginalization. And now right. you've, re- you've relieved me of the responsibility, but you've also taken away the opportunity for me to distinguish myself as a marginalized student. The non-marginalized students have so much else going for them. They don't necessarily need to be able to present a uh, 4.0 transcript, hardly earned, you know, earned through difficult effort uh, to, to show their mettle. I know, but see, this all of this assumes that there really are distinctions, that those distinctions matter, that there are people who know more or less, that are more capable or less capable. But there's a whole contingent of people, and I've seen memos to this effect coming out of legal academia, who contest every single one of those propositions. Now, they can only do that because they're ensconced in this bubble of academia Talk to some law partners. I have uh, I have law partners in Philly that I know, and I've asked them about this. Uh, what's going to be the effect of going to pass fail of getting rid of grades for the COVID period? And they all say the same thing, which is, you know, one way or another, by hook or by crook, we are going to figure out who the better students are or the less good students. Now, you know, all the Penn students are, are reasonably good. It's not like. Yeah. People don't get jobs, but there are tiers in the legal profession. Uh, they're just going to look at the grades that exist, and they will disregard the uh, performance where they have no signal from the college and, and yeah. or the, the law school. And, you know, there's just no way around that. I mean, the people who want to jawbone this issue yeah. to make these distinctions go away, they're they're trying to... They're trying to change reality, Glenn. They are yeah. changing reality. A, there rhetoric. was a on the op-ed page of the Times a few days ago where someone argued, don't get rid of the SAT, ACT. Yes. And this is exactly the argument. The argument was people have to make decisions based on the information available. If you take away that information, they'll make it based on other information. Guess what? That other information is less favorable to the disadvantaged uh, racial minority, uh, et cetera, than, you know, like... If I have to go and on less an reliable. 
if, if I, it's less reliable and it's also less uh, advantageous. I mean, if, if I'm a uh, upper middle class person and I present myself well in an interview, I get to impress the person. If they have nothing else to go on except what they saw in the interview, the person who's come up from the hard side, the wrong side of the tracks or whatever, who's not quite as polished, is not going to look as good in the interview, but they might be twice as smart. They've been deprived of the opportunity to demonstrate that. Right. And people are just dopey about the value of subjective versus objective metrics. I mean, you know, interviews are notoriously distortionary, notoriously unreproducible. They favor people who already get it right and have style and breeding and background. I mean, it's it's really just totally disastrous. But of course, you know, the games that these colleges are playing with the SAT. So making the SAT optional, of course, is a way to improve your numbers, get more applicants, because a lot of people with bad SATs will just not submit them. And therefore, you can swell the denominator for your U.S. news ranking. Uh, you can uh, make your SAT average look great, but because only the good SATs get submitted, you can hide what you're doing with affirmative action, right? So nobody can look at the data because the data will no longer be valid. I mean, the game playing is just absolutely endless. And of course, we just let the universities do this. Now, you know, my hope is that there will be some degree of disillusion setting in with this COVID-19 crisis. I can't be sure that it will happen. I, my guess is we don't know. We actually don't know what's going to happen to the higher education sector as a result of this COVID crisis. Once again, I think the, uh, the upper tiers are going to be fine because they have this incredibly valuable product that everybody wants and people will pay infinitely for. And even if you might not have a cool first semester on campus at Harvard and not get to network. You still are looking at a Harvard degree, but the middle tier of schools, um, the small colleges, the, the expensive, less selective uh, places. I don't know. They, they might actually, some of them go out of business. Um, We might shift to vocational education, which would be all to the good to more of a European system. My president uh, here at Brown, that's Christina Paxson, uh, had a piece in the New York Times, uh, I don't know, 10 days ago or so, uh, arguing that uh, we really needed, that is, we in higher education, to start preparing to make sure that we opened in the fall with the appropriate precautions. Um, and uh, she she said what you just said, which is that we'll probably weather this, places like Brown, we have a multi-billion dollar endowment and so on. Um, wealthy alumni and, uh, you know, uh, uh, a lot of Chinese students paying full tuition. Uh, <laughs> but the middle tier would probably suffer more. Um, and, you know, she took a terrible beating in some of the commentary and the reaction to it because it was alleged that she was somehow promoting and opening up too soon, uh, giving insufficient concern to the safe, quote unquote, the safety although she went out of her way to point out that the universities had to prepare for the management of the campus life in the uh, age that we live in with viral infection and so on. And she was not unmindful of the safety concerns, what to do about students who might fall ill and so on, how to arrange for large lecture classes and so on. Uh, and protocols. Well, I have two reactions to Paxson, okay? One is, you know, the yeah. promo affair remark. She would say that, wouldn't she? Uh, but the second is, you know, I'm kind of sympathetic to the we need to just kind of power through and get back to normal point of view. There is a whole contingent on the right that is very skeptical of the, the lockdown. And I'll, I'll give you my reason for being somewhat in that camp. I think the initial measures were appropriate. In fact, we should have taken more draconian measures at the beginning, like banning all flights from foreign countries. Of course, the mainstream media would have screamed bloody murder about that and then covered it up and pretended that they didn't. But the reason I I am sympathetic to we need to get back to normal is really twofold. First of all, this whole zero risk precautionary principle, you know, we need to create the utopian world where nobody has COVID is just uh, you know, part and parcel of a certain hothouse flower, upper middle class attitude 
of safetyism that just doesn't work for society as You're a whole. You're channeling uh, Heather McDonald now. I assume you've yes, seen her, what she's been writing yes, about I this. Am, right, but this is part of a broader discussion of, Understood. of safetyism. Yeah. Uh, secondly, the initial goal of the lockdown was never zero infections with COVID-19. I mean, this is related, right? Because that is impossible. I mean, it just, in order to achieve that, we would have to come to a grinding halt in every aspect of our society. I think that we are just need to wrap our minds around the fact that we have not conquered infectious disease. We went through a half period where we much reduced the danger from infectious disease due to, uh, you know, some very wonderful salient discoveries and advances in medicine. Uh, and that's a terrific thing in both in vaccination and in antibiotics. Um, but, the, you know, viruses are very cagey and this one has uh, escaped our ability at the moment to tame it. And that is just part of being a biological creature. Okay. Now, in a way, as awful as COVID is, it we're lucky because the death rate from COVID is actually pretty damn low. It's not the bubonic plague. You know, it's not smallpox. Someday we may have something like that and then things will really be awful, right? This is a, a, a sort of single digit or less death rate. It disproportionately affects people with comorbid conditions, older people. Yes, some middle-aged and younger people get hit by a ton of bricks, but it's very, very rare. Okay. So we just need to realize that the goal of perfect safety is not going to be achieved. Now, there are a lot of discussions of, well, it's morally relative to say that there are trade-offs, you know, the, the whole Cuomo line. Well, that's just the wrong way of thinking about it. Okay? Well, I've been saying that here. I mean, people who watch the Glenn Show know that. I've been saying that here uh, for a month now. Uh, there's no avoiding the necessity to trade off uh, various kinds of costs and benefits. And the refusal to acknowledge that leads to bad decision making in which, in effect, you incur costs, notwithstanding the fact that you are unwilling right. to measure them. Uh, for benefits that don't justify it. I so mean, we need I, prudent I and calculated risks. Now, the problem with right. prudent and calculated risks is we have terrible leadership, and I am here tarring the right and the left, uh, you know, our, our politicians. Well, it's a structural problem. Excuse me for interrupting you. It's a structural problem. I, I, I was saying this, uh, talking to somebody the other day. You in a crisis need to be very careful what you do because anything you do, you might have a hard time stopping to do it. Okay, because the the hurting behavior, I mean, what governor in the Northeast is going to open? Okay, to open could be a mistake. It literally could be a mistake. But if you're with the herd and none of them open, you don't get the you're not ever putting yourself in the position of being the one who deviated from the pattern and practice and therefore are responsible for killing people. Nobody That's wants part of safetyism. Okay. So, so you know, once we start down a road, it's very hard to it's very hard to stop. But you can admit your error and, and adjust. You see, there isn't that kind of flexibility and that humility of, well, we're going to try this and we're going to reassess in a week or two, which of course makes perfect sense. Because okay? nobody wants to be the first mover doing that reassessment. Well, right. And I mean, here's the other thing. It's really hard to find that sweet spot because there's no absolutes involved between protecting the elderly. You know, we don't want to throw grandma under the bus. Well, of course not. You know, honor thy father and thy mother. Yoram Hazoni wrote a piece that really spoke to me that we do need to care about our elderly, right? But on the other hand, any viable society has to worry about the future of its young people, And I see the hit that the 20-somethings are taking from this. It is absolutely devastating on top of all the difficulties they were experiencing already, right, from overcrowding, expensive real estate, a difficult job market, the shutdown of of mating markets, the decline in marriage, which is very, very concerning. I mean, the fact that fewer and fewer people are getting married, fewer and fewer women are having children. I mean, this is a formula for long-term unhappiness, regardless of what you 
you know, some people think. Uh, and all of this is, is being sacrificed. So, you know, there is a, a way to balance these interests. Now, Sweden, right? So my view is God bless them because they have always had a kind of pragmatic, I think, hyper-realistic approach to, to old age, to death, uh, to just the natural evolution of life. They recognize that if you're, you know, 85 or 89 or whatever, um, heroic measures are probably not appropriate. They're probably not going to do that much good. And they do involve enormous numbers of societal resources. And so these people do self-regulate. They, they don't seek to do everything, which is, of course, the kind of rhetoric that you get in the United States surrounding treatment. Um, and they, they're a very highly disciplined rule following population. Well, you know, we're not. Okay. Okay. So they're going for herd immunity, basically, and uh, they have a slightly higher death rate than Denmark or uh, Norway or Finland. Uh, and the experiment is still ongoing. We're going to have to see what happens. Yeah, we'll have to. Right. So it, it, it's really a work in progress. Um, but the question is, you know, could we have that model here? And you know, I just don't know. I mean, I see a lot of people defying the lockdown at a time when the lockdown you know, really was important and has flattened the curve. The initial, remember, the initial goal was to not overwhelm the healthcare system. Yeah, I remember. And we just sort of forget that goal. I I told someone there's an analogy to affirmative action. The initial goal of affirmative action was remediation. We shifted to diversity, but we keep reverting to remediation, right, in the way that we think about it. Well, no, you have to choose your theory. And our theory was flatten the curve, make sure the healthcare system can handle it. Uh, we've done that actually. We've, that's a success story. I think it's been difficult. New York is still a hot spot. Uh, but other places have, have managed sort of. Uh, but it's not to go to zero. So what we really need is to think about the measures we need to take and the measures we don't need to take. I have said all along, you can get 85% of the benefit and a doctor friend of mine in the conversation said, no, 90% from a few measures, right? Hand washing, face covering, social distancing to some degree, and self-quarantine if you're sick. Take those four measures. Now, those four measures do not require closing 98% of businesses. Testing, contact tracing. Where are they in your in your? Well, I think contact tracing is a very overwhelming task. Contact tracing and testing are are very very hard to do. Okay, because contact tracing in in our our ragged society, uh, our live free or die society, yeah. uh, is very imperfect. Uh, so you can do some of that, but I don't know how much. The testing part, which everybody talks about, the New York Times just obsesses over, which yeah. is suspicious, uh, is not working because the tests are wildly inaccurate, Glenn. I mean, if you have a 20% false negative rate, uh, a 25% false negative rate, um, how can you rely on the result of any test, antibody testing? Still, you know, in the development phase, uh, not terribly accurate, not terribly useful, not even clear that having antibodies or not having antibodies has any significance medically. The science just isn't there. Not yet. I don't know how much potential there is for testing, right? But it's a technocratic solution. The mainstream media just loves it. It's a way to flagellate and beat on Trump, right? Because as you know, yeah. Trump's fault. And in addition, and this is really leading us astray, if Trump's in favor of it, it's a bad idea. No, I think it's an important point. Uh, uh, I watched Bill Maher. I know you probably don't. Uh, he, had, he had Matt Taibbi on uh, his show last uh, Friday, 
uh, the journalist Matt Taibbi, who's a pretty straight shooter, has been in any case about the uh, impeachment stuff and the and the uh, Russia uh, uh, hoax, as Trump would put it, stuff. Uh, and and one of their points was the uh, hyper hatred of Trump, the negativity of Trump, the Trump can't be possibly right about anything uh, attitude was making it impossible to know what was happening in the world because you can't read the newspaper and learn anything from it. This is Bill Maher, a liberal, and Matt Taibbi, a more or less centrist uh, democratic journalist. You can't know what's going on. Taibbi says, I go to the European press to try to know the facts about something like hydroxychloroquine. You know, if you wanted to just know the facts, you can't find out the facts from reading American sources because they're all so influenced by the uh, implicit agenda of denying any uh, any uh, credit. Or- Absolutely. And, and of course, they'll contradict themselves. I mean, you know, if if someone said it, it might be right. But then if Trump goes ahead and says it, it's got to be wrong. So today in The New York Times is just emblematic of that attitude. Top of the, you know, masthead, um, Stephen Miller and the Trump administration wants to borders. It's like, come on, guys, let's just show a little common sense. You know, we're not saying that everybody who's coming into the country has COVID. We're not saying that. We're saying we've got our hands full right now trying to figure out who among the people who are here already have it. Why do we need this influx of people with their own degree of COVID? The very sensible concern that we need to be careful about who crosses the border because we're trying in a lockdown to prevent the spread of disease gets portrayed as he just labeled all migrants as a oh. disease sickness. You see how racist that yes. is. And and I thought, come on, this is propaganda. This is not reporting the news. You're, you're trying to manipulate me. This is an editorial, not a news report. I thought as I read that story in the newspaper this morning, so, you know, I, I definitely agree. I only had to read the headline and I said, you know, this is this is propaganda masquerading as news. It's an effort to, you know, get me to think a certain way and well, to exactly. away from something let, that's let, just Let me ask you about food. this. So Pompeo yesterday, this is a Monday, yesterday was Sunday, there were the news shows, right. uh, was interviewed. I can't remember if it was Meet the Press, Face the Nation or whatever, but he said um, – we don't know where the virus came from, but there's a lot of evidence that it might have come out of a virology laboratory in Wuhan in China, and we're going to get to the bottom of that. Okay. And I read the newspaper and the newspaper is administration is pressuring intelligence agencies to find evidence (laughs) that the virus came from a Wuhan laboratory. And I said, well, if there is evidence that it came from the Wuhan laboratory, wouldn't we want to know the evidence, the fact that the evidence was generated as a consequence of the administration saying, I want you to look into this, is not discrediting of the evidence. And it's not. Their their, their claim is inside unnamed sources are saying that the intelligence of people might be incentivized to find what the administration is looking for uh, because they wouldn't be objective since they want to make the boss happy. And they say, my God, you're going to preemptively discount evidence of uh, the source of the virus because it might conform with something that somebody in the administration, in this case, the secretary of the state of state is saying. I mean, and, and it's not that? even clear like what's wrong, you know, what agenda is being advanced by this. Now I've talked to, I happen to know someone in, in the local uh, scientific community who is a top virologist and a top vaccine producer. I've talked to a number of people and they say this is a perfectly plausible hypothesis. I mean, there is evidence that one of the first people that had the virus worked in that lab. I didn't know that. Is in Wuhan. It does exist. It is, you know, they are cooking up or they are studying all this stuff. I mean, there is nothing bizarre about this hypothesis at all. It doesn't mean it's true. It's certainly worth investigating. And, you know, to tar it as a Trump conspiracy theory, that is that is distortionary by definition. So when I look at the New York Times, I just sigh. I, I really should stop reading it. Uh, you're, I- you're invited to take uh, the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda in preference to the pronouncements of your own government. Well, right. Right. And I do not understand this romance that they have going with China. 
there. I mean, I do because I have, I've talked to people who are, you know, China captive. They're, they're sinophilic. And, you know, there is this tendency among the people who study these foreign cultures to uh, be kind of won over by them. You know, they, there, there is, I don't know what the source of it is, but it is a definite psychological tendency to kind of go native. And I see it in the people who have always been attracted to China, love China, learn Chinese, are interested in China. Uh, in a way, I saw the opposite when I was at Oxford in the 1970s. There was this small contingent of Brits who just, you know, should have been born American because they loved everything American. They you know, loved- I, was, I was about to say, I mean, China isn't it the kind of the America at the end of the 19th century coming into its own early 20th century where a lot of Europeans would have been fascinated by what was going on. Isn't that kind of analogous to the fascination that many people have with the profound phenomenon, which is the transformation of China in the last half century? I mean, it really is a world historic uh, event, and I can't blame people for wanting to know more about it. I, mm-hmm. If I were younger, might well be attracted in that direction myself. So it doesn't, have to, it doesn't have to be the mindless, you know, sycophancy. It can also just be a... a stunning curiosity about this profound phenomenon, which is the advent of a modern China. Yeah, so let's admire them for what they've accomplished because they have lifted many, many people out of out of poverty and, you know, saved many people from famine and starvation. I give them all of that credit. They are fascinating. They are an alternative culture. But, you know, here's my view of it, and maybe it's just because I don't have a utopian uh, bone in my body. Be very, very wary and be very, very suspicious of these people. No, they do not share our values, or at least certainly not all of them. Yeah. Uh, they are in, almost entirely self-interested, certainly as a regime, uh, and they are pretty unscrupulous. So uh, you know, I really think we need to be extremely self-protective, and that would be my attitude. Um, and that okay. doesn't seem to be the attitude of, you know, the powers that be, the bien pensant. It's very, very puzzling to me. Uh, Amy, I'm going to let that be the last word. We're over an hour now. It's a wonderful oh. conversation. Uh, we'll come back to Charles Murray's book, uh, Human Diversity, uh, which is a blockbuster that deserves to be seriously considered. So I look forward to discussing it with you in, you know, a few weeks or whatever. Yes, Glenn, let's, we absolutely have to do it because I studied this book in great detail and I do have lots to say about it. So. Okay, so we'll do it. People can look forward to that. But meanwhile, let me thank uh, Amy Wax, uh, Robert Mundheim, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, and a frequent guest here on The Glenn Show. And I'm proud to have you as my friend, Amy. So take care of yourself. Bye. Thank you.